and welcome back to Adventures Through Asian Cinema, where your hosts Ben and Jack discuss films from different Eastern countries. Join us on this journey as we dive deeper into the fascinating world of world cinema, two films at a time. Today, we're continuing with the cinema of Japan, as we are still very much in the midst of Japanuary, the month dedicated to watching and discussing Japanese cinema. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, I'm really excited to talk about these two movies, as one of them is, I would consider, an all-time favorite. And the second one was something that I wasn't too familiar with before we got into this, but now having seen it, I loved it. So I can't wait to talk about these two movies with you. Hell yeah. How's Japanuary going in general for you? Seen any other favorites this month so far? Um, Japanuary is going very well for me, um, other than my review backlog that keeps piling <laughs> up. But I I, I've definitely watched quite a few new favorites i would say Mm. um and unsurprisingly i think the directors that were my favorite from last year have kind of stayed my favorite this year sort of solidified them as big favorites yeah yeah um so it's been it's been great i've had a lot of five star uh and four four and a half star Mm. movies so pretty much all i could ask for from this challenge yeah, I think we've both watched some of the same movies and both had amazing reactions to them. Just to shout out, uh, ooh, what should we shout out? Himiko? Oh yeah, Himiko absolutely slaps. Himiko is something that everyone should see. <laughs> Once we return to Japan one day, we'll have to cover it at some point just because, man, I have so much to say about that movie. Right. We've also um, we've also both seen the Pat, uh, Pat Labor movies. Yeah, um, the anime yeah. films. Both of those. They were really, really cool. Yeah, so pretty much great. Uh, we also watched Gozu together, the Mike movie, oh. which, I, which I think <laughs> broke you. <laughs> I think uh, me and Mike, uh, one day I will find the one that five star works for me. But Gozu, once again, just did, didn't know what to expect, but uh, got something else completely. <laughs> <laughs> The two films we're covering today are The Face of Another and An Actor's Revenge. One of the most fundamental characteristics of the Japanese New Wave was a concern about youth. As I'm sure you know Ben and all our listeners out there, it's difficult being young. Coming to terms with who you are, where you are, where you're going, how you're emerging into this wild world. Identity is the key word here. Japanese New Wave directors were obsessed with the idea of identity and the self. Hiroshi Teshigahara really broke out in the 1960s, during the first real emergence of the Japanese New Wave. Directing his first film, Pitfall, in 1962, the psychological masterpiece, Woman in the Dunes, in 1964, and then The Face of Another, in 1966. These films are adaptations of Abe Kobo's original novels, and Kiki MacDonald, an American professor and all-around great resource for Japanese cinema, described these films as incredibly faithful adaptations of those novels. The Face of Another is a film about identity, the idea of the self. Ben, what did you make of this movie? I know you've seen it before. How did it play this time? It played equally as great as the first time, and I have to say that seeing it a second time didn't make it 
any less mind melting. <laughs> um, it, it is definitely like existentialism put to screen as best as it can be. And honestly, it, it leaves, it leaves me floored, you know, even just thinking about it, uh, the way that it, it explores the themes specifically identity, as you were saying, I don't think I've seen anything do it as thoroughly, um, or even as interestingly as the face of another. Um, and I guess I, I'm a big sucker for, for performances in films. Like I know some people, they're, they're all about the direction, what's going on behind the scenes. But I, I love when there's like a character actor that just brings everything that they have um, to the film. And I mean, with Tetsuya Nakadai, he does just that here, and I think this is one of those films that that solidifies him as one of Japan's greatest actors ever. That's the thing for the the majority of the the runtime of this movie, he's doing so much acting, like face acting, where you can't even see his face. The amount of sort of emotion and like stoicism you have to put behind these layers of bandages when you can only see just his lips and his eyes it's a testament to how sort of great an actor it is because i didn't even recognize him um first time i watched it because obviously he's, he's under all these prosthetics and bandages and then later and uh, uh, later points in the film i realized it was him and you know this guy is incredible um for listeners at home who might not know this guy's in harakiri ran seven samurai high and low the human condition trilogy sword of doom samurai rebellion um, he also appears in one of my favorite underseen Hong Kong horror movies, which, again, going to have to cover this at some point. It's called The Wicked City, which is based on the manga series of the same name. And there is an anime, which I think you've seen, Ben? Mm-hmm. Yep. Futuristic Hong Kong, lots of practical effects, monsters disguised as humans, so much good action. I can't wait to watch that again. Um, but yeah, he is uh, such a solid leading man. He he's also the uh, he's also the devil in Belladonna of Sadness. So he's, oh, of course, he's even yeah, in a fantastic yeah, yeah. animated film. He's everywhere. Yes, <laughs> he's in a, a a Ghibli film as well. Um, oh, is it the is it the tale of Princess Kaguya? Yes, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. He's also in yep. that as a voice performance. So yeah, what a versatile career going from you know kurosawa to right through to sort of contemporary animation films and he's still alive and like still acting which is he's insane still rocking. to me yeah so, <laughs> so Tatsu- he's kind of the best tatsuya if you're listening and you want to come on the podcast that's more than fine with me <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things i find with uh Tishigahara is the way he utilizes black and white photography especially in films like this and uh woman in the dunes Color is obviously readily available at this point. You know, in the mid-60s, he could definitely shoot on film. But he chooses to shoot in black and white, which I think works well with the subject matter and the sort of themes and the general execution of his films. His films have these bleached, like, washed-out looks to the black and white photography. And especially with, like, the hospital scenes in, in this film, there's a, there's a sterile nature to the photography. Everything looks so clean and pristine but it's also sort of ominous as well which sort of leads into these ideas of the self and a societal mask that you're wearing all the time yeah i i think that teshigahara is one of those directors where i feel like he he well and truly has total command over the craft Mm. and i mean 
as you were saying, like choosing to, this was a choice to film in black and white. Um, both the, uh, this is a masterpiece, and so is Woman of the Dune, Woman in the Dunes. So both of his masterpieces, he chose to film in black and white. Uh, and I don't know, it, it's something about how he fills up the frame in every single scene. Um, it it feels so detailed, so textured, so symbolic. There's so much going on, mm-hmm. and I mean we've both seen this twice now and I feel yep. like I could go back and and find out that I've missed things that were within the frame. Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. And especially with, um, Tetsuya Nakadai, like center screen. Um, mm-hmm. it's easy for you to get so absorbed with what he's doing that you miss the stuff in the background. But, mm-hmm. um, Teshigahara, despite only seeing, um, a few of his features and a few of his shorts, I don't know. He's his style just mesmerizes me. I don't know if I've seen anyone else make movies the way that he's made them, and uh, I'd say along with maybe Kobayashi, who did Human Condition Trilogy and Harakiri, uh, his films kind of feel, I would say, the least dated. Like despite being in black and white, the way that he presents everything uh, still feels fresh today, and I think that's why this and everything else he's done have managed to withstand the test of time i think woman in the dunes and the face of another are films that i can't even fathom existing in a world of color these are such black and white portraits uh, a very daunting time in japanese cinema as you were saying about the texture or quality of the image that plays a lot in woman in the dunes with all the sand and this idea of insects and sort of stockholm syndrome and everything that's going on in that movie whereas here it's about sort of the internal conflict of the self and how much the face represents the human soul and what is the idea of the self and and i think um something i came to appreciate more on this second viewing um was just how good the the makeup and effects really were like i i don't know why i didn't think about that more the first time but like the few scenes where you see him unbandaged are are pretty astonishing and even just um the mask itself like it 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 doesn't look dated like it looks so good and i'm like how was this made in 1966 it doesn't make sense to me I know we talked last week about Tokyo Drifter and how we were both um, sort of drawn to that film for the Criterion cover, and I think it's worth shouting out the the you know the cover for this film, which is very much him in that in the mask, uh, well in the bandages behind sort of one of the hospital. Um, I don't even know what you, what you'd call them really. Uh, sort of like an outline of the body and things like that and it i for years i saw this on letterbox and was so almost terrified of it not knowing what this film was about it just looks like a like a 50s french horror film like um eyes without a face and other things like that it just drawn to that because it's something you never really see is someone completely bandaged up um only leaving their eyes and lips it's sort of an it's sort of an idea and an image that you don't really see outside of like cartoons i want to say right so i was drawn to the movie for the same reason i mean i'd seen woman in the dunes and i had kind of just looked through the rest of his filmography but that poster immediately stands out and i think what's interesting though is that the poster Mm. is kind of terrifying um, and we have friends in in the Letterbox server that are um, preparing to watch this movie for the film club, 
and they they were asking the two of us like is this a horror movie and it's funny like if i had to categorize it i i feel like horror could work but i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily even credit that to the aesthetics like very early on you get used to the fact that he's bandaged um and and there are some of those sci-fi horror elements at play in terms of like closing in on body parts or replicas of body parts but what's most what's most scary about the movie is far beyond the bandaged look It, it it's that it's forcing you to question what you think identity is what identity means to you um and like really look at the core of yourself like what what is the core of you what makes you a human being or what makes you you um and that's like the huge uh dilemma in the movie and that's what's terrifying it's not the bandaged look it's not even the zoom-ins on on these body parts it's like knowing knowing that you don't know anything about yourself is what's terrifying yeah it's the psychological horror aspect of it it is the um as you said earlier the sort of the existentialism uh the ultimate horror is not knowing what's going on inside your own head um and not even knowing who you are or where you fit in in this world um and i think that plays really well in the face of another which is kind of why we've been drawn back to it and why we chose it for um this week yeah and it's funny because like i was watching the movie and i'm trying to get in the habit of taking notes about movies and stuff now for the podcast and i found myself almost wanting to pause like every 20 seconds just because the dialogue is so good too and as you'd mentioned this is this is based off of a a kobo abe work and they had worked together multiple times um which we should also shout out that this was another collaboration with composer uh, Toru Takamitsu mm. too. These three people worked together multiple times, including for Woman of the du- Woman in the Dunes, and uh, I mean they have to make one of the best groups of collaborators I've seen throughout filmmaking. A trio, yeah, a trio of cinematic history. But but like every line of dialogue. I found myself thinking like I could pause this and think about what was just said for like 10 minutes, but oh, then I would be sure. here all day. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> like I would literally just be in front of my computer watching all day. I'd be intrigued to go in, you know, into those novels and see how much of the, the dialogue in this screenplay derives, you know, comes from that original novel or how much is ab- adapted, you know, or skewed or changed to, to fit the runtime of like this just sub two hour movie Mm -hmm. and how much is how much is left out how much is brought in right i I think that it probably helps that kobo abe was adapting his own works i mean we see Mm. far too often people will adapt someone else's work and maybe the novel or story was great but it it didn't get translated to film well Mm -hmm. um i'm under the impression that kobo abe must have been very familiar with filmic language and how everything translates because in woman in the dunes and this everything is presented so clearly uh and conveyed in such a compelling way but that leads me to another thing i want to talk about in terms of collaborations because this wasn't just another collaboration between people behind the scenes or behind the camera and whatnot uh it's also it, it also marks another collaboration with actors um because 
what I love about this film is that the the two leads, um, Tatsuya Nakadai and his wife, who's played by Machiko Kyo, they're both fantastic. Um, and for people that don't know Machiko Kyo, she was in uh, Rashomon and Yugitsu, also in Gate of Hell. Uh, she she's very she's a very important actress and she's fantastic. Um, and that's just I'm just naming a couple examples. She's worked with pretty much every big director from then. Yeah, I, th- I think I think she was in um, I think she's in Floating Weeds, which is actually one mm-hmm. of my favorite Ozu movies um, when he was in his color era. Uh, I think that's a beautiful movie, and I, I think she's in that. These other bit part roles in the movie uh, are also helmed by fantastic actors um, and people that Teshigahara has worked with before. Uh, the nurse in the film uh, that is essentially helping Tetsuya Nakadai get a new face. Um, this this nurse is played by the same actress that was the the woman in Woman in the Dunes, which I think is is awesome, and then. Um, his boss that worked, or Tetsuya Nakadai's boss that worked for the company where there was an accident that damaged his face. That guy is played by um, Aiji Okada, who was the lead in Woman in the Dunes. And then you go farther into the film, and they're they're staking out um, who they can get face molds from, and there's this man who's listed as the man with the mole. And this man with the mole is one of the leads from Pitfall. So as someone that's like followed Teshigahara's career to a certain extent, it's really fun to see these people who were the leads in his other films uh, pop up. And I should also mention that um, the the movie toys with this, uh, I don't even know whether to call it a flashback or, or it focuses on other characters. And it's, it's another character with a facial disfigurement and that girl is played um, by the actress Miki Iri, who was in Teshigahara's short film Akko, which I just watched for Japanuary. So seeing all of these familiar faces is another thing that really benefited my viewing experience um, in a way that wasn't there the first time I watched the movie. I wasn't as familiar with who these people were, or Teshigahara for that matter, Um but it's super exciting to see directors find actors that they like and continue to work with them. I think something I love about this movie that I just picked up on now that I've seen it a second time was that the psychiatrist who is the person that is is behind this whole new mask thing, he kind of states the intention of the movie from the very start. And then he also, I believe, finishes the movie kind of the same way he starts it. Um, but he, he, he says that <laughs> inferiority complexes uh, dig holes in the psyche. And as a psychiatrist, he fills them in. And I like that as, as a character, he's constantly like prying at Tetsuya Nakadai. But I also feel like he's prying at us. Because um, even though we might not have um, these injuries to our faces... We're, we're constantly wearing masks and throughout the movie he goes on to say like well you've changed your clothing that's another way that you're you're changing you know how you present yourself to everyone else and all these different things and then I start thinking about it and I'm like god he's right but like what does this even mean like how do I move <laughs> forward with this information <laughs> and I feel like Tetsuya Nakadai is the same way he's like I'm me like 
that's all it is. I'm me. Mm. But then he's constantly changing. And I'm like, this is terrifying. It hurts my head. Um, <laughs> and it sticks with me. Oh, for sure. Well, the face is a door to the soul. That's a quote that stuck mm-hmm. with me. And that's, you know, it's just a, a layer of skin, a surface, and it, you could hide behind it or it could reveal deepest, darkest secrets. Well, and, and I liked that... Um, that's the thing there's just so many quotable lines in this it's just every single thing we could we could just say this line and we could talk about it at length um you know i i like that teshigahara and kobo abe bring in like this cultural aspect too and they they mentioned that uh you know in other countries i think they specifically refer to middle eastern countries how uh people conceal their faces and how wearing a mask can be a sign of humility um and isn't humility better than vanity and you, you're under the impression watching tetsuya nakadai that his character is much more interested in vanity um at least for a while but mm. it, it poses all these interesting questions that i don't think there is an easy answer to and i like how i i actually like that we don't really get any answers by the end i think that some people could watch this movie and, and you know hope that Teshigahara and Kobo Abe provide this like relevatory information about what it means to be a human <laughs> and wear a mask throughout your life yeah. but there there isn't an answer to that the best you can do is is just pose the questions and, sure. and leave it to the re- leave it to the audience to think about them and come up with answers for themselves exactly there's no great revelation it's more of a uh, a body of work that suggest pontification and reflecting on the idea of the self it's a very philosophical film um which is you know it's completely dense with its philosophical dialogue and sort of narrative themes and at the end of it i can see people especially newcomers because i remember the first time i watched this it's sort of such a bewildering experience and coming away from this film sort of shocked at what is has just happened it's like the first time i saw uh Bergman's persona or something like that that deals with these ideas of existentialism within the self and how to process that as a human being watching a film for entertainment or whatever um, and coming away Mm -hmm. from that and thinking what was that now that it has become now that the film has become part of the uh, film club pick for our server I I did notice and I I even just like looked through Mm -hmm. some reviews too on Letterboxd itself but I think a lot of people left the film uh, with, with with certain criticisms or maybe not feeling totally totally won over by it. And I know one of the things that we just briefly touched on, how there's these flashbacks to people that are seemingly unrelated to our main character. Yeah, like a parallel, a parallel storyline. Right. And, and I also... So there, there's that aspect, which I think people uh, can rub people the wrong way because it is presented rather nonchalantly. Um and then there's also, you know, yep. this interaction with with his wife throughout the movie. But I feel like as much as people might want the film to explore what's going on within Tetsuya Nakadai's character and only him, I feel like that actually would be limiting the scope of the exploration of identity. I think that our identities hinge so much upon what other people think of us and how they react to our appearance or to what we say Mm. and i i think this time around 
I appreciated all of the scenes with his wife much more than I did the first time. I think the first time I was, you know, absorbed with the the psychiatrist Nakadai mm, dynamic more world, than anything. Yeah. Um, but this time around, like, it really stuck out to me how much, you know, Tetsuya Nakadai was actually creating problems for himself to a certain extent. Um, sure. His wife at least as far as I could tell the second time around did care about him and liked him despite what had happened to him. Um, and he's almost unwilling to accept it. He's, he constantly refers to himself as a monster. He's constantly angry with her for just existing like in the same (laughs) area as him. And I, I think, I think that hits on something that, you know, is just true in all of our lives like we spend so much time around other people worried about what they are thinking without knowing what they're thinking and it like eats at us um and and he's doing that in a way that's much more intensified because of his his um uh injuries but it's still something we all do we we, you know we walk in a crowd of people and instantly wonder you know do we look presentable or we're around a significant other and maybe we're not feeling like we look our best and, you know, we worry that we're not attractive to them anymore. All these types of things. And I didn't quite pick up on all that the first time I watched it, but I did this time and I think it's necessary. And I think that that parallel to the the girl with the scar and her brother uh, further solidifies that as she's someone that um, everyone thinks is beautiful from one side. And then they see the other side and they're repelled. Uh, But the one person that always sticks by her side is her brother, Um, which leads to other questions, you know, because uh, (laughs) exactly with with no answers. (laughs) Right. I I mean, it leads to like questions about is that relationship because uh, there's a almost like a budding relationship between the two or there's definitely a romantic element that's at play. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, like. Well, if everyone else, you know, is repelled by her and treats her poorly for something she can't help and for no good reason, but then this person shows her love, like, what does that really mean? Like, how how should we process that? Should we look down on them for that? Or should we look down on everyone else that, you know, has made her feel like she's not beautiful to anyone other than her brother? I don't know. It, it, it makes me grapple with other moral dilemmas, um, but in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah, if there's if there's one thing this film uh, isn't missing, it's it's sort of takeaway points and homework and internal reflection and general existential crisis on the on the verge of collapse as you as you walk away from this movie. I've got a, a, an introductory book uh, into Japanese new wave cinema. I got for Christmas last year, and uh, I was just re- flicking through it earlier to see if they had anything on this film, and. Uh, it's sort of striking how um, they mentioned the, the sort of doubling of imagery and how that plays into, you know, the face of another uh, in terms of um, using the same sort of shots again and again and this sort of repetitive nature to the photography. If you think about when he's in his apartment, masked or unmasked, it's essentially the same sequence, but for different execution and different ending um to sort of highlight his double mm-hmm. existence even at the uh very beginning of the movie there's 
this repetition of shots um it starts up with a close-up of some people's faces and then it pans out a little bit more and there's like more of the same faces and it keeps panning out and panning out and you see all these um all this repetition of the same faces and it starts to make you wonder you know about these people's identities or like are we seeing something new in in each of these images even though the images are the same because like you said in the movie there's like a repetition of scenes where he's bandaged and not bandaged and they kind of play out in a very similar way um despite the different circumstances um and i i think that something that was interesting to me that i read up on um or actually no i i I saw it in this uh criterion supplement feature that was on the criterion channel it's like a video essay is that this movie uh did not do well internationally it did well in japan but everyone else all over the world you know thought it was lesser than woman in the dunes and i think you know, I, I think uh, Teshigahara was maybe a victim of his own success in that regard. But it, uh, some of the criticisms did have to do with the repetitive nature of the film. And um, some of the people thought it was too chic or almost too polished yeah. or basically artsy farts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Too pretentious. Um, which is like sure. a weird, which is a weird criticism. From the man who, yeah. If you were someone that, yeah, if you liked Woman in the Dunes, it's a very weird criticism. And I'm curious, I'd be curious to find out why the movie now um, is is kind of seeing some renewed interest. If it is just time has separated it farther from Woman in the Dunes and people are willing to give it a, a fairer look. Um, but I, I feel like everything that I liked about Woman in the Dunes is kind of doubled down in this, just in a more intimate and urban environment. Um, you know, the sand dune could have been mm. anywhere, I think is something that was said in, in the essay and that's what made it universal. But, um, despite Teshigahara working in an urban environment for the first time in a movie with the face of another, there's nothing about the movie that feels like distinctly Japanese no. city or anything. Like they're just drinking beers at a bar. They're just in doctor's offices uh, it still feels very universal exactly. to me. Yeah. This place could be anywhere. These people could be anyone. But I think after having seen Pitfall, um, Woman in the Dunes, and now this, it, they all have Teshigahara's stamp. They're all thematically very similar. And, and it's really just kind of changing the environment or maybe uh, refining some of his filmmaking skills uh, to make it work better. Teshigahara after seeing this multiple times woman in the dunes multiple times and exploring some of his his other works i think he's kind of solidified himself as one of the goats for me in terms of japanese new wave especially in this sort of mid-60s point i think i mean as you know woman in the dunes is one of one of the best films i saw for the first time last year Mm -hmm. and it's a film that i i continually think about revisiting and um you know, more of the same with Face of Another in, in terms of these sort of existential <laughs> dramas about the human condition. But then you have the the flip side of it, whereas uh, where Teshigahara was enamored with the architecture of Antonio Gaudi, and he made this fantastically slow and still documentary dedicated to the architecture in Spain. And it's so completely different from his, uh, his feature fictional work 
that I'm so interested in him as a filmmaker and as a person. And I think he's written possibly a book or has been featured in like an art book that I've been I've been trying to hunt down on good Goodreads for the past year. And he seems just sort of like a, a very interesting man. And I definitely can't wait to dive deeper in. Um, I'm seeing Pitfall later this week for Japanuary and can't wait can't wait to see what I think of that one as well. I think a lot of people avoid Pitfall because they see Woman in the Dunes first and then they're, sure, they're afraid. Yeah. I, I get, You know what? It's just like those critics from back then. They're afraid that his other movies won't live up to Woman in the Dunes. Um, sure. But the thing is, is Woman in the Dunes is arguably an all-time great film, period. Oh, God. So yeah. mm. it, it, it's unfair to, to compare all of his work to that. Um, and I think if you approach it in the way that, like, you know, he does use the same actors sometimes, or he does deal with the same themes. I think that will be a much easier way to like get into these other works. Um, Mm. And as you were saying about uh, his Antonio Gaudi doc, um, I think it's fascinating. If you look through like his back catalog, he has a, a film called Hokusai, which is the look at the work and life of a block print artist. And then I've seen, Another short from him called The Sculptures by Sofu Vida, which is a documentary that is very much like the Antonio Gaudi doc, but it's about his father who was a sculptor. So I have the, mm. I'm under the impression that his father being a sculptor and, or an artist himself um, definitely influenced Teshigahara's interests in, sure. in art, but also it had to have influenced him in terms of like the very layered and textured looks to his films. It almost feels like he's approaching film, like as if each frame is a painting. I know everybody says or that. Or a sculpture, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. Using sort of the camera as his, as his box of paintbrushes and painting out these existential dramas for us to enjoy on a... Uh, so yeah, huge recommendation for anyone listening to this and for some reason you haven't already seen uh, The Face of Another or any Teshikahara films, definitely go check them out. I just wanted to say, um, this film makes up a strange sort of thematic trilogy um, in 1966. This is the same year that in Europe, Bergman brought out Persona, which is very much to do with identity and the idea of the self and the double, as well as in the West, um, John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which has very similar imagery in terms of bandaged man's face. Um, There's a sort of more more focus on mortality and death in that film but there is still the idea of the face as the door to the soul and the identity crisis that comes from that so i think that's a nice little piece of world cinema trilogy triple bill for those diehard fans out there the world was going through an identity crisis (laughs) mid-60s i can see it (laughs) The second film that Jack and I are covering is An Actor's Revenge from the director Kan Ichikawa, and it came out three years earlier than The Face of Another. It came out in 1963. And I feel like Kan Ichikawa... Um, isn't a Japanese director I see discussed a lot and I put him in on the Japanuary challenge specifically because 
his films looked interesting to me and I felt like I needed to see them. And if I'm going to see them, then I should make other people see them too. So <laughs> that's where we're at. Um, and before we talk about the movie or um, before we discuss an actor's revenge in depth, I would like to offer some insights into Kan Ichikawa's career before and after the film. Ichikawa showed interest in movies from a very young age, and as a child, he would watch samurai films and spend time drawing the actors. And as a teen, he would then go on to discover Walt Disney's work, specifically his Silly Symphony series, and realize that he loved animation because it combines the two things he loves most, drawing and movies. And he decided to p pursue this desire of becoming an animator, and in 1933, he got hired by J.O. Studio and placed in their animation department. What we know as animation today, he said, was referred to as manga movies back then. And uh, it was in 1936 where J.O. Studio merged with Toho, and Ichikawa made an animated short called uh, Shinsetsu Kachi. And then a decade later, interestingly enough, he worked on a film with puppeteering or he used pu puppeteering techniques to make his next film called Masume Dajoji, um, which was made before the end of the war, but was releasing after the war ended. And because of this, because of the war ending before its release uh, and its use of traditional Japanese culture as a source material, it led to it being cut and released to a smaller audience, despite being intended for international audiences. Um, and Ichikawa noted that at this time, despite the slogan of films are our bullets existing, it was becoming harder for directors to make movies um, that they actually wanted to make. Uh, lots of movies about supporting the war effort were being made, but that ne wasn't necessarily what directors were hoping to spend their time doing. Um, and it was after he made this animated film and puppet film where Ichikawa would meet his future wife, Nato Wada, uh, while still working at Toho. And she was a screenwriter. They met during labor disputes at Toho and they, their relationship was kind of established by having discussions and debates, um, about what can be done, uh, to spark, to spark passion and energy within the film industry or revitalize the film industry after the war. Um, and she played a, a role throughout his career, writing numerous screenplays. And it was at this time with, with Toho um, where he was asked to kind of direct his first film really on his own. And he even went as far as to ask um, his then girlfriend, not wife, uh, you know, what he should adapt into a movie. Um, and that he ended up adapting... Um, a novel called Machiko, and it was adapted into a film called A Flower Blooms. And funny enough, someone else did the screenplay, and he didn't really like it much, so he brought it to <laughs> to Nato Wada and had her fix it, and it went and it went on to do well. And so after that, uh, he he scored more movie making opportunities uh, with his film 365 Nights being a big hit in 1948. And from there, he went to work within every genre, from comedies to melodramas to action. Um, and he said that many of these projects were brought to him by uh, from producers. They weren't necessarily his own ideas, but he expressed a great deal of, of happiness and gratitude 
for having the opportunity to direct them because he described being able to make any films at all uh, as finally feeling like he was able to breathe. So I'm under the impression, you know, from list, I I heard this, I heard all this in an interview with him and I'm under the impression that the man just loved movies and wanted to make movies. And I kind of love that about him. Um, And I want to note that in this interview where he's kind of detailing all this information, uh, it was in the late 90s, so at this time I believe he was in his 80s, and he was just chiefing cigarettes the whole time, cigarette tucked in his lip, talking about the good old days, and I was like, I love this guy. He's kind of the coolest guy I've ever seen. <laughs> um, I love that for him. <laughs> but but to move forward, so in the 1950s, um, this he had enough time to start developing his style more, and people began to notice that... Uh, his films were were more urbane, they were more fast-paced, they had a lot of exaggeration in them, which was very different than the style of Japanese films at that time, uh, which he described a lot of them... He, he described his style as stemming from his feelings of boredom with the dark and languid films that other directors in Japan were making. <laughs> what a burn. Yeah, and, and he said that foreign films excited him, But then he also recognized that Japanese films had a certain rhythm that could not be replicated. So he wanted Mm -hmm. to find a way to incorporate this fast tempo from foreign films into Japanese films. Um, And then it's around this time uh, where he transitioned to working with Nikatsu. Uh, So this just, you know, I mentioned these studios because at this point he's worked with Toho, now Nikatsu. Later on in his career, he works with uh, Dae. So he's worked throughout multiple studios, too. Yeah. But it's at the beginning of the 1950s where he gets to Nikatsu and he's able to make a movie he's always really wanted to make called The Burmese Harp, um, which I have not seen, but our friend Cormac has and has, you know, relayed to us that it's very good. Um, he also went on to make Fires of the Plane or Fires on the Plane, which I've seen and it is phenomenal. After all that is when he uh, found his his way back to Toho or working with Toho as they distributed his film Tokyo Olympiad, uh, which is considered one of the best documentaries of all time, definitely one of the best sporting documentaries of all time. Uh, And when I have three hours available to watch it, I'm definitely going to check it out. (laughs) It was during this prime period from the 50s to 60s uh, where you really started to get a, where people really started to get a feel for what Ichikawa was all about as a filmmaker, not just in style, but also thematically. Um, he was very interested in making movies that dealt with humanity and family, as he's a self-described family man. And so that's what, what interested him the most. And so this leads us to what is nearly the end of his, his prime period, and Actor's Revenge was just a little bit before Tokyo Olympiad. He had already achieved stability, garnered acclaim, as I've kind of laid out, um, but funny enough, it was said that an actor's revenge uh, was assigned to him as a punishment because <laughs> his filmmaking techniques in other movies before it cost Daye a lot of money. And so an actor's revenge is actually a remake of a trilogy mm. um, that was helmed by uh, Tainosuke Kinugasa, who is perhaps best known in the West for Gate of Hell in 1953. Um that trilogy was made in the 1930s, and not only is it a remake, uh, it also features the same leading star, Kazuo, uh, Kazuo Hasegawa, 
uh, taking on the same role, but at his 300th production and, uh, you know, nearly 30 years older. So it, it's something that seemed like a challenging pro- uh, project to take on, especially because the subject matter was considered dated when it was released in the 1930s, and now it's wow. the 1960s. But Ichikawa did not uh, view this as a punishment. You know, he rose to the challenge and saw it as an opportunity. Uh, and, and so did the actor, Hasegawa. Mm-hmm. And my take on it is that they they found... What makes this movie work is that they found ways to give these dated ideas um, like a modernist edge um, because Ichikawa's command of visual language is it definitely seems ahead of its time based on everything else that I've watched from around that time. Um, and he was utilizing filmic updated filmmaking techniques while also referencing the silent age of cinema to breathe some type of new life into the, what people are calling archaic subject matter. And so ultimately to give you guys an idea of what this film is about before Jack and I, dive into a deeper discussion essentially it follows the life of a person named yuki nojo who was orphaned as a child because his parents were driven to death by really shitty people (laughs) (laughs) and uh he went to train in onogata which is when a male it's training uh to be a male performer that takes on female roles and also becomes a skilled martial artist or swordsman in the process Um, And he possesses these soft or feminine features that conceal the other features he possesses, um, which are like physical strength um, that are typically associated with masculinity. And so his unique upbringing and occupation have allowed him to gain insight on people from all walks of life, both lower and upper classes of people. And with this uh, informed worldview or perspective, Uh, He's able to use the information he has to his advantage to plot revenge against three people, uh, Hiromiya, a rich merchant, Kawaguchiya, an ex-clerk and trader, and Sansai Sansai Dobe, um, a former Nagasaki magistrate who works for the Shogun. Um, He's able to use the information he has to plot revenge against these three people that uh, basically facilitated the deaths of his parents. Um, And two... Uh, get revenge on them he takes advantage of Sansai Dobe's daughter Namaji um, who fell for Yuki Nojo while watching him perform on the Kabuki stage and so ultimately the film has a lot going on at once Um, it's a look at old ways of life with a fresher perspective it's a merging of older styles of entertainment with new it's a psychological examination and exploration of gender identity and it's a really good tale of revenge too and because it has so much going on and there's so much to love you know i think it's time for me to start asking you jack you know what your thoughts are (laughs) and what you want to discuss about it first sure oh man what a film so yeah this is my first film from uh ichikawa um went in completely blind again just on the Criterion channel knowing that we'd be discussing it alongside the face of another and as you said yeah 300th film of of the lead actor Katsuo Hasegawa I read that it was sort of like a a tribute to that actor as you mentioned sort of 
returning to the same film he was in in the in the 30s and it's a film that feels as you mentioned very traditionalist with a contemporary spin it is a almost homage to kabuki theater in general uh the way it's presented and the way it's shot and framed in, in that wonderful cinemascope uh framing but it's also so it's so rich in that revenge story and the uh, quote-unquote action sequences within are so sort of wild for this time of sixties Japanese cinema that it's it's hard to it's hard to come away not thinking that this is something special. I honestly was blown away. It it wasn't anything quite like Fires on the Plane, uh, and I'm glad that mm. it wasn't. Uh, just because I wanted to and that's see that's a it's a wartime film, yeah isn't yeah it? it's a wartime film yeah uh, very grim. To, to put it in perspective for anyone listening, it would make a good companion piece with the third part of the Human Condition trilogy. Uh, so in other Ooh, words, it's, okay. it's depressing and bleak, and <laughs> it's a lot to take in. Um, and, and so this is very different in terms of uh, its content, but even in its presentation, it, it's different. And I think that you know is a testament to Ishikawa as a filmmaker and, you know, having learned about his interest in animation and seeing that he worked, you know, in these different styles of film beforehand, it makes sense that, you know, he'd kind of be all over the place, but still good at everything he does. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a culmination of different styles and different inspirations as well. So there's definitely a kabuki theater sort of presentation to it, um, especially the black cloth sound stages or like the theatrical sets as it like almost as if the film is being presented as a kabuki theater production as a play itself there was a an interview with the film critic um tony rains about about the movie and he had mentioned that every single moment in the film is rooted in artifice and I think that that's so fascinating and it goes back to like you said it, it it drawing from these kabuki plays the kabuki theater and the fact that like Ichikawa is able to construct this environment around this revenge tale uh, that you know, like the revenge tale is very real it's very human but everything built around it, it is is manufactured it's it's fantasy and I think that he perfectly balances um you know those differences and, and it makes for a really fascinating film uh I, I like that the film is also i think incredibly self-aware of like where it's drawing inspiration from and uh you know it is aware of like the datedness of, of some of the ideas in the film you know when i was first watching it i was almost like not concerned but i was like i don't even know how we are going to discuss this because like it's really interesting to see this this actor who is always referred to as a man um but that you know they call him a female impersonator um but i think where you know where a greater discussion needs to happen is the fact that the the female persona or i guess the way of carrying himself is constantly feminine throughout the movie um, even outside of the plays, outside of the performances. On and off stage, he carries these sort of 
quote-unquote feminine mannerisms and the costuming and it all sort of plays in and out of these roles because he's playing this dual role which is obviously very common within traditional kabuki theater itself uh the idea of the dual role i think that you know there are moments where what people would would label uh masculine qualities do come out you know as as i mentioned uh yuki nojo is is a skilled swordsman uh swords person and it shows in the movie sometimes um but more often than not um you know this character uh carries himself in a in a feminine way and i don't know how often the discussion was happening you know around like gender identity at that time but i feel like now you know with the perspective that we have in this day and age it's something that you have to think about when you watch the movie um and i have to give a lot of credit to the actor um hasagawa because they they nail it um never does it feel as much as plays are performative, mm. like it never feels performative. Cheap. It never feels disrespectful. It feels like they really fell into this role. Mm. Um, and, and it's a film that possesses, I think, a deep appreciation for femininity. And, and um, you know, it, it, it wants to highlight what's so special about it. And I think one of the ways that you can really see its admiration is the fact that throughout the film both men and women fall for Yuki Nojo. You know, everyone is falling for, for this person um, that kind of has a blend of all of these different qualities. Um, and I found myself just blown away. And then you see literally um, not just with this bouncing of feminine and masculine um, personality, like traits or whatever, um, the the actor literally plays another character in the film and yeah exactly he's he's got this his dual role on and off the stage is this one character but then he's the actor in an actor's revenge is also playing two roles within the film like the actor and and to know (laughs) that this was 30 years after they originally took on this subject matter and you know they were at their 300th production they're i think well into their 50s at this time It, it was it's a demanding role, not just mm. psychologically, but it's even a physically physicality role. of it. Yeah. And, and I was pretty blown away. This was, I mean, this is, um, obviously not in face of another blew me away, but I've seen that before. This is one of like the first time watches I've had in a long first, first time watches in a long time where I was like really blown away by a performance. And it's a film, uh, that I don't really see, talked about or highlighted in discussions around sort of 60s Japanese cinema which is surprising and as you said earlier Ichikawa as a director in general is a name I don't really hear about often and it's a surprise because this film is great. <laughs> Ichikawa after Tokyo Olympiad took a decently a, a decent sized break from filmmaking um, and he went to work uh, on commercials and TV among other things and um, but keep in mind, after Tokyo Olympiad, which was 1965, soon after, in the 1970s, Japanese cinema was considered to be dying. And you got a, a wide, or you got a large influx of Yakuza films, uh, of pink films, the Roman porno series. Um, you got basically a lot of movies that they thought would be quick and easy to make that would make a lot of money. 
Um, and then in the 80s, even more so, is considered very much like a dead period of time for Japanese cinema. Uh, there, there are some highlights. That there's, of course, there's good movies from then. Uh, and Shohei Imamura won the Palme d'Or for um, The Ballad of Narayama, which, by the way, is significant to bring up because uh, Shohei Imamura's Ballad of Narayama is a remake of an earlier film that also draws inspiration from Kabuki theater. So that's an interesting little footnote. But it was in the 80s where Ichikawa, um, along with some some other filmmakers you may have heard of, namely Akira Kurosawa and Masaki Kobayashi, as well as uh, Kaisuke Kinoshita, formed a group called the Four Horsemen. And, and their goal was to find a path forward for Japanese cinema during this, this dead period. And uh, Kurosawa came to Ichikawa and the others with the idea. Um, and normally, Ichikawa went on to say that normally directors might watch a film and be moved, but voicing your opinions directly to another director rarely happened. Um, and s- friendship was a different matter in their eyes. That was a free exchange of ideas. Um, but that free exchange of ideas, uh, wasn't extended to talking about each other's movies most of the time. Um, and so the four horsemen kind of wanted to, uh, study, uh, the film, study together the films that all of them have, have made and exchange honest opinions and get each other's reactions. Uh, and it wasn't just about appreciating each other's work. It was about, um, bringing filmmakers together um, and, and finding ways to produce new films. And unfortunately for all of us, <laughs> um, they, they never actually got around to really do accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. Uh, Ichikawa went on to say that, uh, they could never agree on anything, which is not surprising when you have these four, you know, phenomenal <laughs> directors, uh, not agreeing. Um, but it's also unfortunate because they had this hope to uh, uplift y- younger directors and, and give them a platform to put their movies out. Um, and it, it, it should be said that this also kind of mirrors um, a movement we saw in in the West where uh, Coppola and Bogdanovich also started a director's company in the 70s. And so Ichikawa went on to say that the Four Horsemen did produce uh, Kurosawa's Dodeskaden uh, uh, together, but outside of that, uh, they they never did anything. They were supposed to make a film called Dora Heita, uh, and they were going to write the script together, direct it together. Um, they thought an om- omnibus was too ordinary, uh, but they needed to decide who would direct what part, so they divided the script into parts, like like a paper into parts, and then grabbed what was going to be their part, <laughs> which I think is super, super interesting. Um, but I, I say all that to say that, you know, a director doesn't get asked by Akira Kurosawa to be a part of this filmmaking group unless they're very, very good. And, uh, and unless they've made some works of great significance in Japan. And Kobayashi and Kurosawa, especially um, two of those four horsemen, I mean, some of their films are widely considered the greatest films of all time everywhere, not just Japan. Um, so, you know, having that context, 
that like Ichikawa wasn't just friends with them. He was actively asked to be a part of a group with them. I think just goes to show how much more, you know, people like you and me and everyone else, we need to be exploring his work, you know? Sure. Yeah. This is a name that should be championed amongst these conversations with Kurosawa or Kobayashi. Yeah. I mean, it, it blows my mind. And another thing that I was, I, I came across and this was, this blew my mind maybe the most in a, in a weird way. Um, Jack, I know you're familiar with that uh, cardboard cutout Gekamation film, Violence Voyager. Yes, I am indeed. And so, as I mentioned before, Ichikawa started off interested in animation, even made a film with puppeteering. I found out that right after uh, one of the interviews that was available on the Criterion channel with him, so that it was like 1999, right after... Um, or, or, or during, I should say, he was working on a film, I believe, called uh, Shinsengumi, and it involved foam board figures that you would move by hand, and they were all voiced by, like, a star-studded cast, and it wasn't considered animation, it wasn't considered mm. manga, it wasn't considered puppeteering, um... And so he he made this film in like 2000. So he's well into his 80s, still finding new ways to make movies. Um, And he said that it was important to think about this approach and that he hoped that it would be further developed. um, And and that he, it it didn't even have a a label or a genre uh, attached to it, but he didn't want that type of film to stop there. And while I haven't seen it, I looked up images of it. And by the way, I haven't seen it because, like, I don't even know if you can find it anywhere. I tried. I was say, I, I'm going to try and find this. I, if I have to, you know, fly to Japan myself and get through <laughs> some archives, you know this sounds like something that I'd love. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I immediately looked up uh, the director of Violence Voyager and tried to see, like, maybe if he was inspired by by that movie or not. And I couldn't find anything. But I can't help but think that, like, you know, based off of the images I saw of it and how it was explained, yeah. you know, this man was still innovating sure. the medium of film at eighty something years old, and as a love, as a love for cinema, just trying to push the boundaries even further. And yeah, I need to look this film up, but it sounds like Violence Voyager is a nice sort of uh, extension of this. This sort of new format this new form this new genre of cinema that he was making sort of late 90s 2000s right and 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 he kind of he finished off the interview you know talking about that project and also looking back on his at that time it was so 50 years of directing and he kind of summed it all up with just being a director made me feel very lucky and with cinema you need the help of many people um but you also can't lose sight of yourself and you have to combine the love that those people put into the film uh, with your own individuality. And like, I was really moved by this interview. It was like an hour long, um, but it was just this, this dude well into his eighties that still loved movies, you know, as much Mm -hmm. as he did when he was a kid and saw uh, Walt Disney stuff. And, And, you know, 
those are i feel like those are some of the best filmmakers to kind of follow one where you can tell their passion was always there oh yeah they were willing to work within any genre any type of filmmaking um and so just to know that he has such like a, a vast eclectic filmography um, and I've only scratched the surface with fires <laughs> on the plane and now this and actors revenge. It's like, I feel like a whole new world has been opened up to me, <laughs> which is the beauty of Japanuri, As we've said before, it's finding, as you said at the beginning, you know, you're revisiting directors, you, you know, and love, but you're also branching out and finding new directors, finding new films and finding these new conversations and history that we can have about these directors. Um, so yeah, just to really appreciate that. I don't know, he, his films, I'm trying to think of, or someone that's made films that uh, remind me of Ichikawa's work. I think one of the images in the film that stands out to me the most uh, was a scene that involved a rope, if you if you remember what I'm talking about. And you I could recall, see, yes, yeah. you know, the way that the, the camera is angled, part of the rope is like, it's as, it's as if we're pulling it, you know, it's easily in our line mm-hmm. of sight. And then it just fades into this blackness, this darkness, and you don't know what's on this the other void, side. Yeah. And I'm like, that is just such a baller shot, like su- like such a innovative shot. It's very bold, yeah. isn't it? That's the thing. As we said earlier, he's he's amalgamated these different techniques from the Sansa over the course of this very versatile career, and there is a lot in here. You know, not just production design, but framing and how it's shot that feels like he's pulling from different pockets and different ideas that he's worked with throughout his career this movie it might not be as grand as something like a a Quidan or a Mishima or something but in terms of the Mm. lighting and sets it's pretty extraordinary um and and I feel like so it's funny you say that mm -hmm. so I uh, watching this film the the art direction in general felt really familiar to me so i checked the imdb credits and yoshinobu nishioka's credits and lo and behold he worked on not one not two not three but 10 of the zatoichi movies Mm -hmm. uh the samurai series that i've been slowly working through as well as the first film in the uh, yokei monsters series which i binged last weekend (laughs) so i've felt this sort of the production design and the way that these scenes are set up and lighting is adjusted um you have these shots where it feels very ozu very still very low angles very dim lighting muted colors but then we have these action set pieces with swordplay that feel very dramatic and very well staged and executed like a zatoichi film and that comes through that art director and i feel like again as the director is pulling different techniques from over his his, his his history, this production designer is also pulling from different aspects of Japanese cinema history to create this versatile and rather stunning movie. Well, and it's funny that you should bring up Satoichi because I had read that uh, the actor Shintaro Katsu from Satoichi is in the film too. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so there's a double Zatoichi connection there. I think it goes to show that, like, you know, I, I'm looking through the cast list now and looking at their their wider wider filmographies, and just like the face of another, this is another film where all of the bit parts um, have really capable and good actors, you know, alongside this really strong central performance. 
Yeah, it's a really, really solid ensemble cast. But I mean, what a, what a pleasant, I guess, surprise. Like I, I knew that I loved Fires on the Plane, but I had no idea what to expect from this. And just from the description and, you know, seeing one still of it on Letterboxd, I could tell it was going to be totally different from what I'd seen. Well, yeah, I saw that it was a revenge film, and it doesn't feel gratuitous or glorified or exaggerated. The violence and the revenge nature, it doesn't feel like uh, a lady snowblood or intimate confessions of a Chinese concubine. You know, that the exploitation and grindhouse crowds sometimes gravitate towards. And don't get me wrong, I love those movies. Um, I think there are they are so pulpy in aspects, um, whereas this feels a lot more um, grounded, a lot more realised in its emotional drama and its humanistic drama, as opposed to um, just blood and guts <laughs> splashing up the wall. There's all these different narrative threads um, and different things going on with the characters outside of our main character, Yuki Nojo. Um, you have the three people that facilitated the death of his parents, and you have Dobe's daughter, Namaji, uh, who fell for Yuki Nojo. And I actually feel like the relationship that blossoms between those two, which is um, another thing you could say is rooted in artifice, just like all of the set building around it, um, is actually where the film felt the strongest for me, where the drama hit the hardest, because oh, yeah. Namaji is, is innocent in all of this i mean she's the daughter of someone that did something bad but she did nothing wrong and uh her love for for yuki nojo is 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 very genuine um and at first it it feels like you know of course um he's acting like he likes her for this revenge plot but Mm -hmm. it, it soon becomes clear that maybe there is a hint of actually caring for this there's something person. there yeah um even if it's not love it's it's feeling bad that there's uh, guilt or some sort of you know remorse yeah for this yeah. uh this double life and, he's leading and, and the way that things end up playing out without you know spoiling too much it it does it gets into like a very emotional territory um mm. and i think that's like what really sold me on the film cuz like that the dynamic between those two is i think what helps you as a viewer actually connect to the characters because in terms of the revenge plot itself not too many of us can relate to three people like facilitating (laughs) the death of our parents thankfully yeah (laughs) right um but i think we can all relate to um you know potentially using people to get something we want in our lives Mm. and in this case you know Yuki Nojo wanted to get revenge, and he used someone to to get it. Um, but it, it felt, I don't know, that was a way where the narrative still felt fresh to me. It didn't feel very dated, sure. and it really drew me in emotionally. Um, because, like, the subject matter is slightly dated. I mean, even just the thought of, like, the Kabuki plays isn't wasn't the same in the 60s as it oh, was in the 30s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Ichikawa did have a a lot on his plate in terms of presenting this in a way where we could all, you know, not be repelled by it. And it manages to work. I mean, now we're watching this over 50 years later, and I'm just like, this is a stunning film. Mm. Um, I would watch it 
plenty of more times and talk about it more because there's just there's so much to appreciate about it and i'm sure there's a ton of stuff that we didn't even pick up on mm. between like the there's character a lot to unpack, dynamics yeah. so yeah that'll be a, a future a rewatch so thank you ben for bringing that one to the table today again i i think it, i put it on my japanuary list because the director was listed in your master list but i had never heard of him before and i'd never heard of an actor's revenge and hopefully people will now head out and check it out it's on criterion channel and you know criterion have a blu-ray of it go check it out it's awesome thank you for listening to this episode of adventures through asian cinema uh we recently started some social media accounts and would be thrilled if you'd follow us on there uh we're on twitter and instagram at the moment and we are at asian cinema pod if you want to, I don't know, throw us an email or whatever, it's just adventuresthroughasiancinema at gmail.com. Uh, you can find both Ben and myself on Letterboxd. I'm JCKDVNPRT, and Ben is Brazy Benjamin. Ben, what country or countries are we covering next week on the podcast? So uh, Jack and I came up with the brilliant idea of putting all of these Asian countries onto a big wheel uh, that randomizes them or randomly picks them. And uh, wherever that wheel lands is is what we're going with. And That's where we're going. if memory serves me correctly, we landed on Iran and we landed mm-hmm. on Indonesia. Um, yes. And Iran, we have at least, well, you have more familiarity with it than I do, but we all know Kiristami. Sure. So we, we, have yeah. some, we have someone that we know uh, but we don't know what we're going to cover yet. And then when mm-hmm. it comes to Indonesia, Jack and I know next to absolutely nothing. So <laughs> we are very excited. Yeah, it's going to be nice to explore two countries that we know a lot less about than we do Japanese cinema. Um, definitely going to have fun with that one next time on Adventures Through Asian Cinema. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>